Happy Saturday, bingers. Today's guest is one of the OGs from the true crime podcast world. He and his co-host Aaron were making true crime podcasts before true crime podcasts were cool. Please welcome my friend and one of the hosts of the Generation Y podcast, Justin Evans. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. All right, Justin, a couple weeks ago, I had the captain from True Crime Garage on, and we were talking about how we were two of the OGs yeah. in the in the true crime podcast world. <laughs> you were thinking back to 2015 when we started and 2000, you know, the first crime con. And then as I was setting up this to this, this call to talk to you, it occurred to me, you guys not only were around before us, you guys were around before cereal. Yeah. You're like the OG <laughs> of the OGs. <laughs> I, I, I will not say that I was the first or that Aaron and I were the first, but um, Dan Sapansky with True Murder, he was number one. And yeah. Aaron and I were number two. <laughs> In the space. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. So how does that happen? You know, uh, Captain and I were just, just talking about how the weird ways that we got started, but we got started in a time where true crime podcasts were a thing, first of all, yeah. and there was more of them popping up. But you guys started what in 2012? Yeah, uh, we it was 2012, and I had been called in for jury duty for a first degree murder trial. Uh-huh. And jury selection happened Monday morning. We started the trial by Monday afternoon, and I was putting the guy away for life by Thursday. Wow! And I'm like, this wasn't anything like Law and Order or CSI or anything right. I've ever experienced, uh, you know. And uh, I told Aaron because we were both really into podcasts at the time. You know, we listened to Joe Rogan. I listened to Snap Judgment. You know, all the old school podcasts. And I told Aaron, I'm like, I want to talk about this. I want to tell the world what the legal system's actually like. And Aaron said, you know, I just watched this great documentary called The Staircase, and I want to talk about it. <laughs> so yeah. that was episode one and episode two. So how did you, like, how did you take that, the idea you wanted to talk about it, how did you guys take that into let's make a podcast about it? Because at the time, it wasn't just like, you know, guys like Joe Rogan or Adam Carolla or whatever yeah. making podcasts, but just regular old fellas like us weren't out there making podcasts. Like how did, how did you, what are, what are your, the backgrounds for the two of you? You're like what you did for a living. Like, did you have audio experience? Like how did this happen? I was actually in it fixing computers and Aaron works on an assembly line, fixing cars. But I grew up in punk rock bands and like played music uh-huh. in garages. And Aaron and I actually played music together. It was like dark ambient electric, stuff. So we both had sound engineering background and just, uh-huh. you know, and I thought, well, recording a voice is kind of the easiest thing to do besides, you know, I mean, I could record drums, I could record guitars. That's That takes a lot of tweaking. Just talking, right. not so much. So, you know, when Aaron and I first started, it was gaming headsets on Skype. 
Okay. <laughs> it was terrible quality. But we just decided because we were fans of podcasts that that would be the medium. It would just we'd call each other on the phone and talk about the crap all the time. So it was just, well, let's just record it. And in the beginning, I won't even say that it was true crime. I mean, yeah, I was talking about my jury duty and Aaron was talking about the Michael Peterson, you know, case. But it was called Generation Y because we wanted to question society. We wanted to question how society functions and its response to things. But all of our episodes about true crime, numbers through the roof, and all our other episodes where we gave commentary on current events or something, bombed. So Nobody gave a shit what you had to say about that stuff. (laughs) 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 Pretty much. So, yes, we technically were the second true crime podcast in existence, but that wasn't the point. I didn't say I want to create a true crime podcast. I just wanted to talk about stuff with my buddy. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and and then, you know, it's funny now when people are like, oh, you have a podcast and they don't know who I am or anything. And I'm like, right. yeah. And they're like, well, what's it about? I'm like, oh, it's a true crime podcast where I talk with my buddy. And they're like, oh, another true crime podcast where two friends discuss the case. <laughs> yeah. Really original. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Do you ever well, tell him like, was- no, but I was the second one. Like, <laughs> like out of the 10 million there, I was number two. It, it was so bad when Aaron and I first started that we used to get negative feedback from law enforcement and authors and people going, you have no right to be in this space. You shouldn't be talking about this. Like we would get people saying, you're not a cop. You're not a journalist. You shouldn't be doing this. That was the f- negative feedback we got in the beginning. Right. You know, and now it's so normal. Like everyone and their mother has a true crime podcast. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, they're easy to pick apart now. Yeah. Don't, God forbid, you make a matter of fact, that's how we met was a mistake you guys made on your podcast. Well, it was a couple mistakes, I'm sure, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why I didn't even think about that till just now, but I remember back in the. In the the serial dynasty days for me in the Anansayed yeah. case, you guys had did something, and a bunch of my listeners, whatever you, whatever you had said, they didn't, it wasn't, they didn't think it was accurate. Well, I, I know that um, Aaron is very particular about details and facts, mm-hmm. and I remember the the one thing that people really got mad about was when the you know the the school and the track field were separate addresses, <laughs> uh-huh, but right. they were across the, the parking lot from each other. And right, Aaron, right. Aaron pretty much was like, no, it's, it's down the road. It's separate address. And everyone was like, no, it's not. But they're not in Aaron's head and how he thinks, which is very, right, yeah. <laughs> like, very just, yeah. that's a separate address. It, it, it's and not. That, that Anansayed crowd back during season one for me, and when you go, that, that crowd was hostile. Yeah, they were very <laughs> hostile. <laughs> People were passionate about it, but I had written you guys an email and I was, cause my, cause my listeners were, were, were telling me about it. And I'm like, Hey guys, I listened to it. You know, it's a cool show. You just might want to know this and this and this because people are pissed off and yeah. you guys were real, real friendly. We had to exchange a few emails Yeah, and uh, then we finally got to meet in person at the first crime con <laughs> yeah. where we all got to feel like rock stars for a day. Do you remember the first crime con when for the first times in our lives, people wanted our autographs and selfies and stuff? Yeah, I know. It was weird. I. Somebody, somebody asking me to take their picture with me. I, I still, it still is weird. I mean, I'm, I'm used yeah. to it, but I'm like, why? 
<laughs> it's so weird when you take when you combine like all the you, know, you walk out in the world and nobody gives a shit about who we are. But if you just take all true crime podcast people and put them in one room, yeah, they they make. I, I remember Colin Miller. I was I was sitting talking to Colin mm-hmm. and he just like whispered to me. He's like, "Isn't this so weird?" I'm like, what? He's like, <laughs> "All these people are here to see us." <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's really weird. Yeah, it was very very odd, and uh, I. I loved it though. And so, you know, I, I we generation Y has now been called like the house band for, for crime con. So <laughs> yeah, <whatever. right. laughs> we have some pretty kick-ass, uh, uh, fan meetups together. Us, yeah. the two of us and, uh, Nick and captain. <laughs> did, and, and did you meet Nancy Grace at crime con? I met Nancy Grace when I was on her TV show. Oh, <laughs> so we won't. We weren't really on speaking terms when CrimeCon came around. <laughs> I, I have to say that as much as I expected to smell brimstone, brimstone when she walked in, her southern charm kind of won me over. I have to say, she was super kind to me and super nice to all of her fans and stuff, but I don't agree with a single thing the lady says, but I was like, you know. You're not that terrible. <laughs> well, so this is when I was on, and this is, I know we'll get to the case, but yeah. this is probably more interesting for people. <laughs> so when I was on her TV show, and I, it was about the Anand Syed case, but it was a debate show we're on. Oh, okay. And I get in there, and I already, you know, she, she's, she's just got her shtick, right? Everybody's guilty and, mm-hmm. and just gets really loud and obnoxious about it. And so I go in there loaded for bear, and right off the get in her intro, she says five things that are just false. Yeah. Like, you know, and so, and they, and they told me, and for anybody that watched that episode of, of Grace versus Abrams, the producers pulled me in a room and told me the point of this show is to have like really intense, exciting arguments. And everybody comes in here and they're intimidated by Nancy and nobody will argue with her. So why we want you just to light her up. (laughs) Really? So, so I'm like trying, I'll do what they said. There's literally a producer in the back holding a sign that says, jump in, Bob. Yeah. Like when they want, when they want me to do something. So I come out and she said, well, I want to introduce first, uh, the host of the true crime podcast, truth and justice. This is Bob Ruff. Bob, uh, can you introduce yourself? And I said, you know what? Let's before I waste any time doing that. Let me just tell you what you just said that was wrong. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and we get into this thing, right. And we're doing it. But what, what was funny about Nancy was she's vicious. I mean, we're just, just at each other's throat. And it, this was a live to tape show. Yeah. So they would literally commercial break and they'd be like, okay, break. And then she'd come over. She's like, oh, Bob, this is great. You know, I you're know. doing such a great job. She's it's the sweetest all, it's woman all, in the world. It's all a show. It's all a show. Yeah. <laughs> and, my, and, and I happen to be friends with uh, Sean T., the fitness guy. He was one of our first sponsors. And, and, and he, know, he knows her personally. And he told me before I went on, he's like, dude, she, it's, she doesn't give a shit. She's, it, that's her character. That's how she makes her money. That's her character. Yeah. And he was 100% right. She was the sweetest woman ever. Off ca- off camera, which I at the time I was like, man, she really is a nice lady. And then I got in the whole way home. I was stewing like that makes it even more bullshit. I know, that she's saying I know. all the stuff she's I, saying. I know because she's fake at that point. You you think she's two faced and fake, and I get it. Yeah, but you guys had a nice chat at CrimeCon. <laughs> I just I, I didn't even really chat with her. I just saw the way she interacted with fans. And there was at one point she was sitting at a table at a restaurant with her family. And some fans approached her while she was eating to get photos with her. And I'll tell you right now, if I'm sitting eating with my family and you come up to me, I might be like, dude, come back later. (laughs) You know, I'm like eating. She got up. She was so nice. She took pictures with them and was just all smiles. 
That's awesome. I put I put truth and justice stickers on her kids' backpacks. She <laughs> 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 you know, she has twins. They came yeah. up to my booth and I, and it was right the crime con was like right after that show and so we were kind of like not making eye contact with yeah. each other because you know there was discussion about it. I, I think it got her show canceled because like after that episode they did one more and it dropped. So I think she was maybe a little bitter about that. But her kids were like looking looking for my booth and I'm like, you want some stickers? Yeah, and I stuck them all over their backpacks. <laughs> I drink too much at CrimeCon, Justin. I I've uh, I will have a nice finely crafted cocktail on occasion, but I will say that I don't. I prefer not to drink when I'm around my fans and listeners because I just you know. <laughs> smart, it's smart. Justin does or uh, Aaron doesn't have the same no. the same opinion because no. I've I've closed down many a bar with Aaron at CrimeCon. And and that's the Aaron. Aaron doesn't get to you know he's got kids. He's got a family. He doesn't get to go out yeah. and cut up much. And I mean, I grew up drinking at like age thirteen, so I don't really need to do that now. <laughs> right, you're past it. <laughs> uh, real quick, for last thing before we get into the case. So you guys do something. I'm I'm learning right now during this our season nine, the case of season where we're doing a different case every week. Yeah, and it's very different from the process I'm used to. And you guys now for. Eight years have put out a case every week about a different, and they're all very well researched and very well put together. What is your guys' process like? Are you do you guys make scripts for them, or do you just kind of go with bullet points and they're off the cuff conversations? Um, in the beginning, it was just Aaron and I would find something that interests us, you know, just some case that was cool, and we would just read up on it, and we would read up on both sides, people that absolutely thought this person was guilty or this person thought they were absolutely innocent. And then we would just have an off-the-cuff conversation that slowly molded more into a structured conversation. Uh, Now we have researchers that provide us with all this documentation. You know, sometimes they give us bullet points, sometimes they give us scripts. But even if they give us a script, we're still having a conversation and that's never changed. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's more or less Aaron telling a story and me responding to it. Sometimes it's me telling the story and then Aaron Aaron just comes and fills in some of the, you know, places that he knows more details about things. Sure. But it's always been really conversational. It's really incredible that you guys don't the, the re, I was just listening to your episode about the case that we're going to talk about the Kansas City Butcher case and I know like as you guys are you're almost finishing each other's sentences. And I'm like, that is, that's a hell of a chemistry between two hosts to be able to do that. And that's why I was like, are they, do they script that out or does it just happen that way? No, it, it kind of happens that way uh, because I know we weren't scripting anything when we did this one. In fact, I read the book, uh, a book on uh, Robert Berdella called uh, Burial Rights. So I had read the book. Aaron had a bunch of information on his own and we just ran with it. And it wasn't scripted at all <laughs> so, that's awesome you you, yeah. you guys do an awesome job and so this case is, is an interesting one to talk about you know for my audience we cover mostly wrongful convictions but we're trying to branch out a little bit during this this mm-hmm. this ninth season right now and i find ro- the robert Berdella case or the kansas city butcher or the collector as yeah. he goes by sometime to be really interesting because of the timing of when all this happened because you know, he was around about the same time as Jeffrey Dahmer, mm-hmm. and the whole world knows who Jeffrey Dahmer is, and they don't know <laughs> who this no. guy is. And he and and he's in in my opinion just just as bad or or worse. And it's like 
his victims, no one knows what happened to them. You know, I hate to, to sensationalize the the killer, but I mean, it was a horrible thing. And I think it's a good look at society back in the 80s because I think that, and I think you mentioned this on the show too, that the fact that his victims were gay men made it not as appealing is not the right word, but it, it, it seemed like it was the society didn't care so much about what he did. Absolutely. It's, because he was killing gay men. You know, we're, we've come a long way. We still have a lot further to go. But, you know, we still, our society still has a very victim-blaming mentality. And if you're a sex worker or something like that, then, hey, you were asking for it because you had a high-risk lifestyle. But then you add in the fact that this, the victims were male and gay. That just ramped up the... I don't care about this guy or what he did to these people because they're all, you know, however society interpreted that or perceived them. And not all of his victims were were sex workers or anything like that. Uh, but a lot, you know, because this back this happened in the 80s. So between July of 84 and April of 88, you can just imagine a young gay kid coming out to his family and the family rejecting right. him, you know, saying, get out. Right. And now this kid's living on the street. He's getting involved in drugs. He's getting involved in a lot of different things just to make ends meet. And then he runs into a guy named Robert Berdella, a guy who's, you know, older, has his stuff together, takes in this, you know, not kid because they were mostly, you know, 20 and up, but takes him in under his wing and, and helps him. And he would, as he put it, take in strays. Mm -hmm. He actually did help some of these young men out, give them a place to stay, get them back up on their feet. But then he started changing and uh, going more for his sick and dark and twisted fantasies. But he would extend a hand to, you know, these young gay youth that were looking for somewhere to be and somewhere to go. And it's kind of disgusting that he would offer a helping hand and then victimize them. Right. So if I understand correctly, there are at least six known victims mm -hmm. who he kidnapped, raped, tortured, and murdered. Yeah. And the, the way you guys covered it in your episode, which everybody should go listen to this episode, it gets into much greater detail of, of Generation Y. Um, but, but your format was you kind of started with the last victim yeah. because that's how he got caught. So, so that's kind of condensing this. Tell us about that. Cause, cause this guy was doing this for four years and nobody had a clue. And no. it seems like nobody was even looking for these victims. No, I mean, this, these are people that don't have close relationships with their families. These are, you know, young, young men that are living on the street or just, you know, not a lot of. I guess, strong relationships. And the last guy, his last victim, uh, he had him tied up and bound in his home. The The guy was, you know, he all of his clothes were torn off. He'd been tortured and he would hold people captive for weeks. It wasn't just like he right. would capture you and, and kill you. He did horrible things. And we'll get into that in a minute. But this last guy, Bob, I just call him Bob. Bob left matches in the bedroom and his last victim was able to light 
the the match and burn through his bonds to free himself. And then he jumped out a window and jumped down from a second story, injuring his leg. And all he had on was a dog collar. Right. When he ran across the street and found, I think it was a meter meter worker, like gas meter person, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And he went and had them, them call the police and they came and he was, you know, he was nude and beat up because of all the, the torture. And, and he, he managed to outsmart Bradella by basically, it sounds like he, he got Bradella to trust him <laughs> by feigning that he was trusting him by being cooperative and, yeah. you know, Hey, you know, I don't mind this, but would you mind putting my hands in front of me? And could I get some cigarettes and, and that's what finally led to Bob Berdella's capture because he he goes finds a meter maid, meter maid calls the police, the police come. But then oddly enough, what you guys talked about, they didn't just go in like like that wasn't enough probable cause. Yeah, <laughs> it's something I always harp on. I'm just like you know, oh you smell weed, you got po- probable cause to kick in the door, but you know, right. a nude man running down the street with a dog collar on saying he's been held captive and sodomized for however long. Nah, we don't. We don't have any probable cause just yet. Yeah. Uh, it took him a while uh, to finally gain entry and get a warrant, a search warrant for the home. <laughs> and they found a lot more. I mean, and at that point, they're just looking for evidence of kidnapping and sodomy, really. Uh, right. I don't, know, I don't know what kind of evidence you find for that, but the, the bondage and the... Uh, the shackles and whatnot. That was definitely something they were looking for. But they found a lot of weird stuff because Bob ran an oddity shop at uh, a local flea market in Kansas mm-hmm. City. So he was all into, you know, like taxidermied animals and stuff like that, uh, you know, old medical equipment. So his whole house looks like a horror show. It looks like Chainsaw right. Massacre stuff. And also, real quick to touch on the, the oddities in the house, there was also a deal where. Some of the things he had were some books on the occult, mm-hmm. and be, and they were for his shop. But because this was the the eighties during the the height of satanic panic, there was theories out there that were being spread around. I think Geraldo Rivera was part of it that this was some sort of satanic ritual thing that he was doing, uh, which of course turned out not to be the case. Well, Bob was actually uh, uh, I don't remember if he was Catholic or Christian, but he was raised very religious. And his father died at a very young age, and people say that that's when Bob started to question the existence of God and his faith. But even in later interviews, he he does reference God still. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, and that's a serious level of compartmentalizing to you know. But then again, we have BTK. We have a lot of other serial killers that were very religious. You know, right. But as you mentioned, at the same time, you had Jeffrey Dahmer, and we all know Jeffrey Dahmer's name. And Jeffrey Dahmer had similar victims, you know, men, gay men. But for some reason, people remember Jeffrey Dahmer because you insert cannibalism into there. Well, right. we have cannibalism with, or alleged cannibalism with Robert Berdella, but what Robert did to his victims, I think, is actually worse than what uh, Jeffrey Dahmer did, because Jeffrey would coax his victims in, maybe have sex, and then strangle them, beat them, do something to them, kill them relatively quickly. 
Uh, it was very rare that he would hold on to his victims for a long period of time. But Robert would chain his victims up in a bedroom or in the basement. He would put caulking in their ears so they couldn't hear. He would swab their eyes with either bleach or ammonia so they couldn't see. And he would inject their throats or make them ingest bleach or Drano to deaden their vocal cords so they couldn't scream. And he would electrocute them and he would hook up electric leads to real sensitive parts of the body, um, especially if they misbehaved or didn't follow his every rule once he had abducted them. And that over weeks, I mean, and of course, he's repeatedly raping them over and over and over again. Right. I think that's way worse than Jeffrey Dahmer myself. You know? Yeah, I, I agree completely. And as you guys mentioned on the show, some of them fought back to the point where there's there's a documented case of at least one time where he had to go to the ER to have part of his penis reattached because it had been bitten off. Yeah. And how that didn't raise any red flags in the hospital is beyond me. I'm exactly like how on earth, I, I, you know, if, if you brought your child in and your child has a bruise or a broken arm, they're like, oh, are you abusing your kid? But Right. This man comes in and it's pretty obvious that it's been bitten off. Um but no. And I guess we could blame it on the times. It was the 80s. I don't know. I've no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's super strange. You know, and then so all he does all the torture, the raping, and then eventually he kills his victims. Yeah. And then but he gets away with this for 4 years and he lives in like a neighborhood, right? You you're from Kansas City. Have you been by where where the house was? Yeah, um, I mean the area? I live a little over 2 miles from there right now. So Oh, wow. Yeah. Um I've I drove past it once, but you know, they tore the house down, but we'll get into that uh but he would dismember them. Um he would hang them up and gut them and let the blood drain out into a drain in the in the in the basement. And that's how he got all of the guts and blood out. And then he would chop them up, put them in garbage bags, and leave them on the street for the trash man to pick them up. For years. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's insane that, that that happened. And then he gets, he gets caught because this last victim gets away. And, tells, and, and, and I believe he told the police that he had shown him pictures of what looked like dead bodies, people yeah. that he had killed. And then and you, you talk a little bit about what they found once they got into the house and executed the search warrant. Yeah, they find uh, body parts and they find skulls. He kept at least two skulls, human skulls. One of the skulls was from the man that bit him. And for whatever reason, he wanted to keep that man's skull. And they found 200 pictures of, and I believe it's, I remember what I read, there were at least 19 different men in those photos that they found in the house. Yeah. But he was only, they say, so it's, I, I have a hard time figuring out because they, they say there were at least six victims. <laughs> and he confessed, the reason we know so much about him is in order to make a deal to keep the death penalty off the table, he confessed to a lot of what he did. Yeah. Did he, but did he not confess to all the, you know, to all the people that were in the photos or about them? So it's speculated that he didn't kill all of his victims. It's speculated that he just 
uh, raped and tortured a lot of them, but didn't kill them. Or he did kill a lot of them, and he just never admitted to it. But he only confirmed six. But there were photographs of dozens in there in various states and degrees of torture and horrible positions. And that's another thing. Uh, when they arrested him for the kidnapping and sodomy charge, they had set bail for him, you know, like $100,000 or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking, I know they don't know what they're dealing with, but we, I'm sure you can think of a lot of different cases where somebody's accused of a crime, whether it be wrongfully or not, where they've denied bail. Right. Many times. And they're not denying, you know, they're initially they set bail. And then once they find these photographs and all the victims and some of the body parts, that's when the judge finally comes back and revokes bail. But mm -hmm. just imagine if he had somebody that would have paid the, you know, 10%, you know, founded Bale's bondman or something. I don't right. know. <laughs> I mean, so he never did bail out. No, he didn't. But there was a chance, you know, that was that a he could have. Yeah. Yeah. You know. And he did some, you know, there's, there's two reasons we know a lot about him for the things he confessed to later. And then he also very creepily kept a journal, like, a, like it was just like a handwritten journal of what he was doing. Yeah. And they're like date and time stamped, aren't they? Like yeah. every little thing that he did. Yeah. He documented all of it and photographed and, and, you know, and he would say, you know, and, and before all this, he, he would take in stray dogs and experiment on animals to see how long, you know, if you give a dog some sort of sedative, how much and everything before you kill the dog. And so he was keeping track of what he would inject some of these victims with. So he would know. And I mean, it's, it's, it's it reminds me of like governments that do genocide. It, you know, it's right. like keeping track of your, your atrocities. And he definitely did that. And he kept trophies. He kept possessions of some of the victims and he kept skulls and body parts of some of his victims. Yeah. It seems like there was a definite kind of a typical, because he seems like he's a sexual psychopath. He's, you know, a, a serial killer. And, and oftentimes you see this escalation. And I wonder why, because in his journal, he never wrote down names and they have these photos, but he only confesses to six and we don't know, you know, what happens to the rest of the people that are there. But I wonder if, it, if that's because, you know, so he starts with dogs, maybe he starts with torture before he finally kills someone. But in the, I think, you know, nowadays it would be different. But if you look at how things were in say 1985, if you were a gay man and you just been raped by another man and tortured, probably a good chance that you don't want to tell anybody. No, and the police. I mean, we still see that to this day with even with, with women, you know, that, that they don't want to, there's a lot of times where, you know, a woman will be sexually assaulted and will never come forward because they don't want to face the ridicule and people not believing them and things like that. So I can imagine that, that that's even compounded even more back then for a gay man. Yeah. I mean, you you almost want to just keep it to yourself because you don't want to be re-victimized, and right. that's that's how they would have been treated. I mean, I, I know that at least with Jeffrey Dahmer, one of his victims escaped, and he didn't speak very good English. So the cops found this kid, you know, the younger man in an alleyway, and Jeffrey Dahmer came out and said, "Oh, he's my lover. Give him back," and the cops right. did. And I mean. I'm assuming similar situations with 
possibly some of uh, Bob Berdella's victims. I mean, they, if they told somebody I was raped by this man, the cops would have been like, oh, sounds like a, a lover's spat gone awry or who cares? Right. It's, it's a man, you know, whatever their stupid twisted logic would have been. Yeah. And it was so twisted back then that, yeah, I could see them like, oh, well, that's what you get. Yeah. You know, that kind of, of ridiculous attitude back mm-hmm. in the back in the 80s. Yeah. You mentioned that the that the house was torn down. If we can, uh, as, we're, as we're wrapping this up, I think the story is really cool about the guy that came in and bought the house and what he ended up doing with it. So the uh, he came in. I'm trying to find his name here. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I can't find it. That's all right. Uh, but it was pretty much a philanthropist came in and bought the house up. He let the police pull evidence out, like the drain mm-hmm. and and all the the stuff, and then he tore down the house. And then the two houses, the two neighbors, were able to pretty much split the land up. So all you have there now is a space with a yard, and the mm-hmm. yard is split down the middle. You wouldn't even know that there was a house there. Now, somehow, some way though. Uh, I don't know if it was the same philanthropist or if it was a different guy, but somebody got a hold of all the evidence from Bobardella's crimes, and they started a website where they're selling it all, and it's in the evidence bags. And I'm like, what on earth? Like how? Oh, wow. And so it got a lot. I I looked for the site. I couldn't find it. Um, I think that it got a lot of bad press and uh, probably got taken down. But he had BTK and Bundy stuff on there too. He was selling all this murderabilia stuff. But I don't think it was the same guy that bought the house and leveled it. I think it was a it was a different guy. Because wasn't there some story, someone that was doing something and and using the money to give to the victims? Yeah, and I don't think this is it. <laughs> that wasn't him. <laughs> no, because a lot of the victims' families had called the news agencies and were very upset that. Photo- possible photographs of their son or, you know, dead family member were being sold on the site. Right. And all the, the weapons, you know, the, you know, the bow saw and things he used, and including the drain in the basement floor were being sold. I wonder if that happened because, so Bob Berdella ended up dying in, he avoided the death penalty, but then he died in prison in 1992, had a heart yeah. attack. Yeah. And I wonder if it's because of that, there, you know, there's certain evidence retention laws in every state that the state was no longer required to keep the evidence if it was to be destroyed and some officer or clerk or someone with sticky fingers thought, ooh, I can make some money off of this stuff. Yeah. I, it's somehow it fell into the hands of another guy who made, I think the website was called Onslaught. But again, I, I did a 15-second Google search for it, and I didn't find it. Maybe it's still up. But yeah, somehow it got from the evidence locker to another guy's hands. And I mean, I, I know a lot of people in the Kansas City area. I know a lot of the oddity shops and things. And I've come across people that sell murderabilia. And one of them did show me one of Bob's, uh, like, it wasn't a business card, but it was like a pamphlet, like a brochure for his bizarre, bizarre shop. And he asked me if I thought it was real. And uh, I said, yeah, it looks very real because I was very familiar with the case. So, yeah, it's- It's out there. It's out there. It's out there. And it's really disgusting. 
but I did appreciate at least them tearing down the house because I mean, right, you know, you can go down to Galveston and see where Robert Durst, you know, killed the one guy, his neighbor. You know, that right. that, that building's still there. I mean, you can still go to a lot of cities and see, you know, and go gawk at, you know, whatever murder scene you want. But at least in Kansas City, they they did take down his home, which yeah, I and think that's because it's, it's got to be rough on. I mean, he probably still has living victims, and it's got to be rough on the victims' family. So for that, yeah, that's I think a definitely a good thing that was that was torn down. Yeah. So l- last thing, Justin is there, you get into a lot more detail on this as well as a ton, eight years worth of other cases <laughs> <laughs> on the Generation Y podcast. Do you remember? I know it was in 2017. Do you remember the episode number for this episode of my audience wants to go check out the rest of the details? Yeah, look for uh, the Butcher of Kansas City or the Kansas City Butcher, uh, either way. And it's, it was about three years ago that we released it. And yeah, it was a redo episode because when we first covered it, I hadn't read the book yet. I just read a bunch of articles. So the second episode, the redo is far more detailed and a lot better. Awesome. And they can find that if they go scroll back, look for the Kansas City Butcher in the 2017 range, somewhere around episode 202, I think. Yep. <laughs> Sounds right. <laughs> Perfect. Wait, Justin, man, thanks for taking the time. And if we keep doing this, I'd love to have you on again and talk about another case. Awesome. Sounds great, man. Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.